Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. When Congress passed the Endangered Species Act in 1973, it said that species of fish, wildlife, and plants in the U.S. have been rendered extinct as a consequence of economic growth and development untampered by adequate concern and conservation. Other species of fish, wildlife, and plants have been so depleted in numbers that they are in danger of or threatened with extinction. These species of fish, wildlife, and plants are of the aesthetic, ecological, educational, historical, recreational, and scientific value to the nation and its people. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. 2023 marked the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act, better known as the ESA. Where do things stand with the act and the plants and animals it was to protect? We're going to explore that today with Andrew Carter and Lindsay Rosa, authors of a new report from Defenders of Wildlife, the Endangered Species Act, the next 50 years and beyond. We'll be back in a minute with Andrew Carter and Lindsay Rosa. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Gear up for 2024 with Interior Federal Credit Union. Synchronize all your accounts in one place with their tool, Money Management. Money Management allows you to create budgets to fit your lifestyle, set up goals for the future, monitor your account and loan balances with one login, track debt, and more. Apply for membership at interiorfcu.org and sign up for digital banking to get started. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome to The Traveler, Andrew, Lindsay. It's great to have you. Nice great to see you again, Kurt. You recently came out with a, a report, the Endangered Species Act, the next 50 years and beyond. It really is a, uh, a roadmap of sorts um, to the future, as well as a look back um, to the past 50 years of the Endangered Species Act. Can you point to some of the biggest impacts that the act has had over its first 50 years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Endangered Species Act, as it was written, clearly write our best tool for doing what it does. Um, it is to prevent the extinction of our species, recover them to the point where they no longer need the protections of the act, um, and of course also focuses on the protections of the ecosystems on which they rely. And it is it is a success. Uh, as it was written, over 95% of the species that were listed under the Endangered Species Act and are afforded its protections are still with us here today, which is a, an impressive uh, feat for, for this law. And given that we're continuing to face down you know, a crisis here, we're losing biodiversity and species at a rate unprecedented in all of human history, this tool, the Endangered Species Act, is you know critical to helping us effectively address this loss and make sure that we continue to have these species around not only today but for future generations. So we're talking about 50 years, the past 50 years, but also beyond because we need this tool and we need it to be stronger than ever if we're gonna continue 
to fight uh, the losses that we're seeing. You know, on one hand, Lindsay, you said that it's been extremely successful um, in, in saving species and preventing them from going extinct or becoming threatened. And yet, on the other hand, you pointed out that we're losing incredible amounts of biodiversity, um, not just in the United States, but across the globe. Um, before we get to to the, the bad news, um, Andrew, can you, can you point to some of the, the species that have really benefited from the Endangered Species Act, species that we would have lost were it not for the, the act? Absolutely. And there's some really kind of iconic American species that have been saved by the Endangered Species Act. Uh, bald eagle, you know, devastated by DDT, when the, it was listed under the Endangered Species Act, recovery actions were taken, and now it is recovered. Uh, peregrine falcon, same issues. Uh, some species may not have recovered yet, but they were saved from extinction by the act. Uh, black-footed ferret is kind of a big one, where we thought it was extinct, a remnant population was found, and then the protection of the act allowed it to kind of persist. And recovery actions are still going on, and the species has been reintroduced in a lot of different places. What about some of the biggest failures? Um, so this past year, uh, 23 species were designated as extinct under the Endangered Species Act and removed from the list. Uh, however, in most cases, these species were either extinct or functionally extinct when they were put on the list. Uh, some of these species had not been seen for years before they were listed under the act. So, I mean, that is kind of where you see the failure is when you don't protect the species in time. And then, um, honestly, when you do protect the species, if you do get it in time, where you're not putting enough resources into recovery, into protection. But like Lindsay yeah. said, I mean, this is a species, this is an act with a greater than 95% success rate, which is fantastic. Yeah. And despite existing for 50 years, um, it's not been easy for the Endangered Species Act to survive. Indeed, at times it likely could have been described as both threatened and endangered. And that continues today. Absolutely. This year alone, right? This was the, the 50th, this past year, uh, 2023, was the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act. And we saw an unprecedented rate of attacks um, in Congress and from politicians that actually, on average, over one uh, a week. So it, it added up to over 50 attacks on the Endangered Species Act and its 50th anniversary. And so, so yeah, we're, you know, for an act that's, it is saving and recovering our endangered species, it's become a little bit endangered itself. And it's, it's something that we uh, obviously continue to worry about and continue to ensure that we are defending the act uh, as Congress intended, um, and also continuing to strengthen it where we can. These uh, attacks on the on the ESA are are certainly more frequent. They're also becoming a, a little bit more kind of innovative using different pathways than I think we've seen in the past. And it's it's something that um, we need to we need to ensure that we can keep this act around um, so that it can continue to do its job the the best as it can. As these attacks are it's pretty impressive the the disconnect between the desires and the interest of the American people who support the Endangered Species Act and its full funding um, and really understand the importance of biodiversity and these species to their everyday lives, according to some of the polling that we did this past year. And yet this deafening disconnect um, between uh, what those who are representing the American people are, are doing to the act. 
Yeah, yeah. We're going to delve a, a bit deeper into some of those attacks and, and what's affecting um, implementation of the Endangered Species Act. Is some of it also um, the agency? I mean, there's two agencies that oversee it, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Marine Mammal Services. National Marine Fisheries Service. National Marine Fisheries Service, right. So often we talk about Fish and Wildlife Service and we forget about the uh, Marine Service. Um, and, and what I'm getting at is in Florida, the Florida panther, it's possibly the most endangered mammal in North America. Um, there might be 200 individuals in the population. There might be less. Um, Fish and Wildlife Service has never designated critical habitat for the Florida panther. Is that important or is that just um, something we we shouldn't need to worry about? No, that's ex extremely important. Critical habitat, you know, the agencies are supposed to designate critical habitat when a species is listed or shortly after. Uh, that critical habitat doesn't create a preserve. All it does is it tells federal agencies that they have to take special care not to adversely modify that critical habitat uh, and disadvantage the species. And yes, uh, it's, you know, a critical part of protecting these species. The fact that they have not designated critical habitat is unfortunate. It allows destruction to go ahead that could adversely impact the panther. Uh, in many cases, I think it probably does. Um, and it's kind of not using the full toolkit of the Endangered Species Act. Well, I'm just wondering in, in the state of Florida, South Florida, um, particularly where the Florida panther currently exists, is it is it too populated? Is it is it too developed um, to adequately have critical habitat? I mean, it's not like the, the Yellowstone area in, in Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, they're sparsely populated. There's plenty of room for grizzly bears and, and wolves to, to roam naturally. Well, no, I mean, there's, in the Endangered Species Act, you know, that's not really a measure of how you designate critical habitat. Uh, critical habitat is area, are areas that are uh, essential to the conservation of the species, whether that's urban, whether that's rural, whether that's natural, whether that's not natural. Uh, it's important to protect that habitat. Uh, South Florida, of course, has Everglades National Park. It has Big Cypress. It has a lot of areas that can support the panther. Unfortunately, a lot of those areas are being chipped away pretty quickly. Uh, the Florida panther is especially vulnerable to habitat fragmentation. So what does it take to convince the Fish and Wildlife Service to designate critical habitat? I think I think there's one organization in, in Florida, one nonprofit, that is um, sued to get Fish and Wildlife to designate critical habitat? Um, unfortunately, you know, sometimes uh, groups like ours, groups like that one do have to sue. Uh, there is a legal requirement um, when it comes to critical habitat, like there's a legal requirement under many areas of the ESA. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service, National Marine Fisheries Service, they have a lot of dedicated biologists. They have a lot of people really working for the protection of the species, but the agencies don't always do what they're supposed to do. Uh, partly, this is due, of course, to the resource limitations we were talking about before. Right, right. And, and Go ahead, Lindsay. I was going to say. I was going to say exactly that. I think Andrew's getting to that point. Is you know, staff are often unable to do what what they need to do because they don't have those resources. The the Endangered Species Act, you know, obviously is is starving for funds, and that money doesn't go just to the particular actions or, but it goes to the staff who, you know, need to be in place, the biologists who do the science that helps inform some of the decision-making in terms of where a critical habitat may need to be, the people who um, help do the work to actually 
put forward the designation, the and then those who, you know, are there to help continue to, um, you know, implement and enforce. So, and of course, do all the work that comes after the fact, right? Um, all of the consultations that uh, that happen uh, whenever there's going to be an action uh, in the the critical habitat space. So I think, really, you know, funding is a is a key um, obstacle, not insurmountable, of course, um, but one that's that's really been a challenge for the Endangered Species Act. So, so Lindsay and, and Andrew, um, back in 2019, the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services listed land use change, climate change, pollution, species exploitation, and invasive species as the five direct drivers of global biodiversity loss. Should politics have been in there? That's an interesting one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would say, you know, thankfully for the Endangered Species Act, uh, you know, and this is something that's supported uh, by Americans and obviously one that, that we're believe really leads to some of its major successes is that it's centered, it's decision-making and what's supposed to be the implementation of the act is centered in best available science. So really science is what's supposed to be at the core of its decision-making and not the politics. I think it's that's kind of key, um, a, a key part of the Endangered Species Act and, and definitely what has led to the recovery of these species. It's its the science and the understanding of the threats and the uh, biological and ecological needs of these species and understanding when they need to be listed and protected is certainly also should be uh, based on the science and not on the politics. But it is something that, uh, yeah, we have seen that there are certain figures and obviously there have been certain um, actions in this past year to try and repeal or prevent some of those species from uh, getting the, uh, the the proper protections that they they need. Absolutely. I, I think in the report, you point out that Congress has repeatedly used appropriations bill riders to prohibit the Fish and Wildlife Service from listing, for instance, the greater sage grouse. Um, the greater sage grouse is the largest grouse in North America and once numbered over 15 million with a range spanning from the West and up into Canada. Their numbers have declined by approximately 97%, and the species populations continue to plummet as Endangered Species Act protections are denied. Um, during 2023, the SA's 50th anniversary year, members of Congress introduced more than 50 bills or riders to weaken the Endangered Species Act. Uh, it's just an astounding force that... that conservation and health of the world's biodiversity seems to be up against no yeah I, I would say that that this is not a not a trend um that we we are we're in favor of or want to con see, see continue um obviously there's certainly a strong need for a strong endangered species act right now um and certainly for a lot of these species uh, including the the sage grouse that you mentioned and some of the others that uh, were kind of, I think, picked on this past year, the dune sagebrush lizard, um, the northern long-eared bat. Um, some of these are really seeing the the steepest declines um, and really some of the the most imperiled, <laughs> if you will. And it's it's been a 
difficult year um, to watch as some have kind of tried to remove or um, prevent some of these species who are in the greatest need of these protections from, from really getting them. Yeah, I just want to say, I mean, if you look at the greater sage-grouse, that rider has been added for, you know, nearly 10 years, approximately 10 years, and we see the greater sage-grouse has declined during that time period. Uh, we see what the cost of this political interference can be. Yeah, and, and during the, the Trump administration, um, there were um, significant changes to the Endangered Species Act that, um, I don't know if you want to say tied the hands of Fish and Wildlife Service but which imperiled some species. Um, I understand the Biden administration has has reversed some of those, but not all of those. Are they still having a, a dire impact on species preservation? Yeah, I mean, when you weaken the Endangered Species Act and the those regulations try to weaken some really fundamental parts of it, and the species are always going to feel the kind of the harm. Um, I think we've seen that over the past several years. And we've seen how those regulations have kind of uh, limited what the Fish and Wildlife Service and National Marine Fisheries Service can do when they're trying to protect these species. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I, I want to say that uh, the two changes that I recall from the Trump administration, one would allow the um, federal agencies and land managers to consider economic impacts of development and, and uh, species preservation. And another one, I believe, had to do with... Um, historic habitat versus um, the need for critical habitat. Do I get those right? Well, I mean, the first one, uh, yeah, that was an extremely uh, unfortunate attempt to change how the ESA is implemented. Uh, the Endangered Species Act itself says, you know, point blank, you're not allowed to consider economic factors when you're deciding whether species should be listed. They should be based solely on the science. Uh, the Trump administration put up uh, created this regulation that said, well, the agencies can at least do that analysis. They can look and see uh, what the cost of listing would be. Uh, unfortunately, that's really not compatible with the Endangered Species Act. Uh, so yeah, that was a pretty bad one. The as far one, as it- I'm Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say, as far as the other one, the historic habitat of a species, whether that should be con considered when you're judging um, where the critical habitat should be included. I might have that wrong. I'm not sure. Uh, Was it that um, uh, for critical habitat can be beyond where a species is currently found? Is that it, Andrew? I don't know. That was in the regulations. There was this. The other major one that you that was kind of a win that was reversed was the blanket 4D rule. I don't know, Andrew, do you want to go into that one? Right. Oh, sure. Uh, so, yeah, the blanket 4D rule was a rule created by the Fish and Wildlife Service. When a species is listed as endangered, it receives these really strong take protections. When a species is listed as threatened, which is a slightly less urgent classification, it means the species is likely to become endangered in the foreseeable future. They can get what are called 4D rules. Those are species-specific protection rules. So they don't necessarily have to be the full take protections, though they often are and they often should be. Uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service had a policy where if they didn't set those 40 rules, the default endangered protections applied to even threatened species. And they got rid of that, which, uh, yeah, we thought was very unfortunate. Fortunately, the Biden administration has proposed to reverse this uh, to get back to the point where threatened species, which are also imperiled, which also need strong protections, uh, receive, at least by default, uh, these strong take protections. 
Now, another aspect or the challenges that the, the Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Marine Fisheries Service face is funding. Um, you point out in your report that full funding, the Endangered Species Act, would make up only a minuscule part of the federal budget, approximately 0.5% or roughly half of 1% of the current annual discretionary spending. The act has been, as you put it, chronically starved for funding. Um, a 2022 analysis by Defenders of Wildlife calculated that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service receives roughly 40% of what it needs to fully implement the act. Is, is this funding issue um, politically driven in a means to try and undercut the Endangered Species Act, or is this just uh, a matter of the appropriations progress in, in Congress? I mean, it seems that all land management agencies, you know, the Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, BLM, Forest Service, are underfunding, underfunded, rather. I mean, I couldn't really speculate to what the motives are. Um, unfortunately, this is a pattern we've seen for a very long time. Uh, even some uh, members of Congress who are proponents of the strong ESA, who want to protect it when it comes to the appropriations process, when it comes to those negotiations, they might not be fighting as hard as we think it should be fought for given the urgency of the extinction crisis and given the importance of biodiversity to this country. Um, like you mentioned, I, you know, this would be a tiny drop in the bucket compared to discretionary sp spending generally. And it's, you know, important. It's incredibly important to this country. Biodiversity and ecosystem services provided by biodiversity are incredibly important to this country. And unfortunately, Congress has chosen um, to not really treat it as a priority when it comes to funding. And we hope that's going to change. What's it going to take to change? I mean, um, obviously, groups such as Defenders are on the Hill and, and you're lobbying. Um, it just seems that Congress has gone off the rails in terms of what it's considering in the nation's best interest as, as opposed to fighting partisan battles. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Andrew's uh, alluded to it, but you know he's he's right. I mean, biodiversity conservation and really addressing this crisis and the the main drivers that are pushing it along is really you know needs to be a national priority. So there there are some um, efforts that are underway, hopefully to you know it, it introduced both in the House and the Sen Senate is a call to create a national biodiversity strategy, which is would be one uh, way forward to, you know, amplifying the crisis really to the national priority status that we need and, and creating policy roadmap forward uh, for acting on that. Um, there's also some other steps that have been made to help kind of fill some of the knowledge gaps that can help in terms of advocacy and I think translating some of the need into um, really action, especially funding um, toward biodiversity uh, conservation. The uh, Biden administration has called for a, a few different components, one of which is a, a national nature assessment, which will help us really understand in terms of our current status and future trends, what biodiversity and nature um, is doing here in the U.S. We have these great global uh, scientific syntheses. We don't have the the equivalent here for the U.S. And I think some of that knowledge will help to, you know, fill those gaps and help us understand 
that need. There's also this, um, although it it takes time to develop, um, this development of um, uh, natural capital accounts really to start to think about how these ecosystem services are of critical value to to American people, to livelihoods, to economies, you name it. You know, no nature, no us. And I think um, you know some of these pieces may may help with um, creating some of that movement. I'm glad you brought that up, Lindsay, because. You know, each year the National Park Service comes out with a report pointing to the economic impact of the national park system. And it goes something like this. For every $1 invested in the national park system, it generates $10 of local economic activity. And I don't think the national parks were ever specifically viewed as economic engines. And I was wondering if it wouldn't be smarter or more accurate, more beneficial, to calculate the natural capital of the national park system. What benefits, ecosystem services, does a grizzly bear bring? Does a a white bark pine bring? Um, Do salt marshes bring? I mean, you look at that, and and I would wager that the impact in dollars and cents is far greater than the economic impact in a gateway community. And if perhaps we could put that figure on the national park system we would see greater benefits in preserving and conserving that? Or am I just off the rails myself? Don't be bashful. <laughs> I was going to see if Andrew is going to come off mute, and he did. So. Well, sure. No, I, I mean, we think it's important, you know, as kind of a first principle, you know, these species have value in themselves. They should be protected. But yes, I mean, biodiversity creates a tremendous amount of value. Uh, you mentioned the National Park Service. Um, you know, Yellowstone brings in almost that half billion dollars to the communities around it. Uh, a lot of people come to Yellowstone because they want to see grizzly bears. Uh, you know, there's an economic benefit of this, and but we're seeing politicians try to get the grizzly bear delisted, try to remove protections from the grizzly bears uh, in Yellowstone. And I think you, you raise a good point. I, I think people should become aware of how critically important nature is to our economy. Uh, billions of dollars from pollinators, uh, Biodiversity cleans our air, cleans our water. Uh, there's a, you know, ecotourism brings a lot of money. Wildlife watching, especially bird watching, brings in billions of dollars. And I think if maybe more people were aware of, you know, how important biodiversity is to our economy, I think you're right. I think there might be, uh, you know, there's majority of Americans strongly support biodiversity protections. Uh, but I think this would kind of cement just how important it is that we get the right policies, we get the right laws, uh, we get the right you know appropriations done to protect this biodiversity. Yeah, yeah. This is Kurt Rappenschek with the National Parks Traveler. We're talking today about the Endangered Species Act, which turned 50 back in 2023. Um, Defenders of Wildlife came out with a new report, the next 50 years and beyond for the Endangered Species Act. We're talking with Andrew Carter and Lindsay Rosa from Defenders. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. National Parks Traveler has launched the National Parks RVing Guide, the definitive guide for RVers seeking information on campgrounds in the National Park System. The guide is now available free through the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store. If you're a traveler who wants to explore the National Park System, you'll want this app. The guide is packed with details for campgrounds in more than 70 national parks across the country, searchable by park, state, or region. You'll also find feeds of the traveler's content, 
including our latest stories and podcasts. Download the National Parks RVing Guide and start planning your next trip today. Listener and reader support make the National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation at nationalparkstraveler.org. Now, we've talked about politics, we've talked about funding. What about the agencies themselves? And I believe Section 7A1 of the Endangered Species Act requires federal agencies across the government to use their authorities to help recover threatened and endangered species. Um, back in 2021, your, your group, Defenders of Wildlife, did an analysis that found that very few federal agencies had developed recovery plans under this provision of the Endangered Species Act. Have things improved since then? Unfortunately, um, we don't see that much movement on the 7A1 movement, uh, 7A1 kind of provision specifically. Uh, but I think you've kind of put your finger on something that's very important. It's something we identify in our report as something that's critically important moving forward. Uh, the, when Congress passed the Endangered Species Act in 1973, uh, it was a revolutionary act in a lot of ways. And one of the revolutionary parts was this idea that it's not just you know, specific agencies who are responsible for protecting threatened nature species and recovering them. It's the entire government. It's, uh, you know, this is an important mission. It requires, and Congress mandated, an all-of-government approach. Uh, so you, know, you take an agency like the National Park Service, which has probably more about around 600 species, threatened and endangered species on national parklands. Uh, now, the National Park Service does do recovery work, but we'd like to see that work expanded. We'd like to see collaboration between different agencies expand. You know, a lot of land management agencies, the Bureau of Land Management, uh, the Forest Service, they have a lot of impact on the species that are on their lands, on the lands they manage. And we would really like to see a more ambitious, more coordinated, uh, a better funded uh, attempt to kind of fulfill that 7A1 obligation, the obligation to use agency authorities to recover species not just protect them, but recover them. And what's preventing the agencies from doing that? Is it, is it willpower? Is it funding? I think in some Staffing? cases, it's, you know, these agencies have also have other missions. Uh, they might not be as aware of the 7-1 obligation as they probably should be. Uh, resources are, are always an issue. A lot of these agencies are underfunded um, and they might feel hesitant to take on new programs or new initiatives when they have this funding uh, limitation. But like I said, I mean, the Endangered Species Act 71, it's the law. It requires these agencies to use their authorities. Um, and we'd like to see the agencies, you know, use, that author- use their authorities more to conserve threatened endangered species. Any idea how many complications invasive species are creating in terms of protecting native species. I mean, you look at Everglades, possibly the poster child for invasive species, um, the Burmese python, the uh, tegu, South American tegu, just to name two reptilian species that are decimating native populations. Oh, absolutely. Invasive species, and it's, you know, habitat destruction, things like climate change are or should be very noticeable. But yeah, Invasive species cause a tremendous amount of damage. Everglades, a great example. Uh, you know, there are so many exotic species, invasive species in the Everglades that the ecosystem functioning is really 
not anywhere near where it used to be historically. Uh, threatened endangered species are, in many cases, very uh, vulnerable to invasive species. Uh, there were, like I said before, there were several species delisted uh, due to extinction. A lot of those were in Hawaii, and a lot of those species went extinct largely because of invasive species. Species that came in, ate their young, uh, species that they couldn't compete with uh, on such a short time scale. And, you know, in some cases, invasive species that, you know, uh, spread disease that they were not, that they had not evolutionarily developed an immunity to or a way to uh, deal with. Yeah, the mosquito in Hawaii and its impact on the native bird species is just, just incredible. And and we're going to touch on this a little bit later. Is you know the, the technological trials that they're they're using to try and combat that is is just amazing. Um, but yeah, invasive species. Um, the traveler did a year long study on invasive species impacts in the national park system, ranging from fish to mussels to pythons to pigs and. Um, in many cases, there, there's great success um, being recorded, but in many other cases, it's an incredibly daunting problem that the Park Service faces. Now, as, as the um, title of your report points out to, part of it is not just looking at the past and the current situation, but the future. Um, you point out that as the biodiversity crisis intensifies, the country will face will be faced with increasingly complex questions on how to conserve threatened and endangered species. Conservation scientists such as yourselves and technologists, fortunately, are developing new and improved ways to approach these questions. Biodiversity conservation will greatly benefit from cutting-edge innovations that can be applied to increase the efficacy of conservation efforts. Um, before we touch on some of those technological tools, you know, Lindsay, you had mentioned um, the need for the, the Biden administration to, to raise the uh, biodiversity crisis um, in the national consciousness. Are we going to see that anytime soon? I mean, here we are in 2024. It's an election year. Is that going to go by the wayside? Yeah, I mean, we're we are certainly going to uh, hold out hope. Obviously, there's a lot of things um on the on the to-do list and things that we're pushing that we would like to see um become a reality uh before uh we head into a an election year um and we'll continue to push for those national biodiversity strategy and obviously continuing to ensure that we prioritize our imperiled species and our uh, biodiversity conservation for the for the nation is uh, always going to be at the top there. Um, and of course, it is yes, 2024. We will uh, continue to remind everyone out there to uh, vote for wildlife when the opportunity comes. Do we need do we need the Biden administration to raise the profile of that, or can groups such as Defenders of Wildlife, National Parks Conservation Association, um, and others? bring it to the public consciousness through a, a national campaign of sorts? I mean, I think just as with conservation, um, conservation and the communication that that goes around it and really kind of mainstreaming it with the public is, is going to be something that needs to be collaborative. Uh, you know, this is something where we're all kind of part of the problem. We all can be part of the solution as well. So everyone has a role to play. Um, so yes, you know, I, I think environmental NGOs and defenders of wildlife and our partners are are one piece of that and and reaching reading reaching certain audiences. Um, but I I think you know 
the the government and those who are leading us are also, um, you know, to, you know, this this needs to to come from them, and uh, we're all accountable. And obviously, there's been a lot of uh, communication from the the current administration about tackling the climate crisis here in the U.S. Um, that's you know something that's inextricably linked to what we're facing with biodiversity as well. So um, it is important to, I think, continue to make sure that not only the climate remains on top, but that um, biodiversity is is elevated to um, you know similar levels so that we can really address both of these these crises that um, we face and that really are going to impact every facet of our lives. Now, one of the interesting um, tools um, that I learned about while we were doing our series of stories on invasive species was the use of eDNA, environmental DNA, to identify if an invasive species is in, for instance, a water system or if there's an endangered species in that same water system. Is that really opening incredible new new ground or new tools that can be used in, in the protection of species, eDNA? I think so. I mean, I think that this is, you know, one of those um, really fascinating uh, new frontiers that's still being explored. The the idea that we, you know, for for something that we may not see or something that is extremely elusive, a lot of these species, we don't have a lot of information about exactly where they are living right now, exactly where we need to be um, placing those protections or designating that critical habitat or, um, you know, thinking, um, you know, more refined in terms of um, location and and the protections that are afforded to those locations. I think that this is going to really help us um, being able to, you know, take air or water samples or soil samples and detect just from that, not having to observe a species or um, disturb them in their habitats um, or, you know, um, some of these other really kind of what could be invasive strategies for uh, finding and uh, tracking species. I think that this is, you know, really kind of going to be an, an interesting way forward for for really filling some of these knowledge gaps and and helping us get those species the protections that they need. Andrew, what about artificial intelligence? I mean, as a journalist, that scares the heck out of me um, because of you know this this belief that we can replace human journalists with an artificial code that can write stories. Um, and yet, you know, somebody was telling me about how artificial intelligence can really help in in assessing things and in, in identifying patterns or, or whatnot. Um, what role does artificial intelligence have in, in species preservation? I mean, we're kind of at the sort of dawn of the AI age. I don't know if you want to call it that. And yeah, there are certainly concerns from a societal perspective. But when it comes to conservation, uh, one thing we found that AI can be especially good at is going through huge data sets, uh, you know, quicker and more comprehensively than humans could. Uh, to give an example, and we use this in the report, uh, remote sensing data. Do we want to track changes over time? Uh, will satellites gather, you know, every, every square meter of the Earth's surface? Uh, to have scientists, human scientists, 
look through these images uh, to try to identify uh, problems that have arisen, whether the land has changed, uh, kind of do these analyses would be kind of not really feasible uh, unless you're gonna spend billions and millions of dollars. Uh, so artificial intelligence can be a way to kind of go through this data set quickly. Artificial intelligence can flag, say, an area that might be of concern, um, maybe a protected area, a national park or a refuge that had some kind of significant land cover change over the past year. Uh, it might not be seen by humans, but if the AI can flag that, then human managers can look at it and say, hey, there's a problem there. We need to investigate further. What about traditional ecological knowledge. I mean, that has been something that the um, the, the Biden administration um, with Interior Secretary Howland has really brought forward, the knowledge practiced by indigenous peoples for time immemorial. Um, native communities in the United States often hold important and distinct understandings of species and habitats yet known of Western science. I mean, that's kind of surprising that here we are in the 21st century and and there's a lot of knowledge that we've either ignored or overlooked or we're never aware of. What can traditional ecological knowledge bring to the, the um, battles to preserve threatened and endangered species? So you had mentioned kind of this idea that these communities have lived in nature for hundreds of years, or thousands of, for thousands of years. Over that time, uh, you know, these people have identified or observed a lot of really important data. Unfortunately, through the 20th century, uh, there was a bias against this, where you know Western science was considered the only way to go, uh, which is just unfortunately wrong. That you're missing a lot of really important information, a really important understanding of how landscapes operate, uh, the interaction between species and their habitats. And so over the past several years, especially, I think you know, these Western scientists, quote unquote, are and the agencies are getting a better idea of how important, how powerful this knowledge can be to talk to the people who have lived in these landscapes, who have developed uh, bodies of knowledge about these landscapes that can inform conservation actions and management. Lindsay, going forward, um, since looking into the future is part of your report, what can be done to speed up review and potential listing of species in need? What, what can be done to protect the Endangered Species Act, if anything, from, from political attacks? How can we make it better? In 30 seconds. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's something that's, um, yeah, technology is going to take us only so far into the future, right? There's still a lot for humans to do um, to ensure that the Endangered Species Act continues to be this strong, powerful tool. And not only that, but becomes stronger as we're going to need it with some of these other impending crises that are are related to the, the unprecedented losses we're seeing in biodiversity. Um, yeah, I, I, I think for the future and for these attacks, we need to we need the American people to continue to support the Endangered Species Act to act on that support, to um, communicate with their representatives. We need those folks to step up and we need kind of the leadership in Congress that we saw over 50 years ago now um, and in the administration to make this a priority. I think that that's one way that we're going to be able to continue to ensure that the Endangered Species Act is 
here with us as well and for for future generations. Um, obviously, there's going to be con the continuation of Defenders of Wildlife and others in defending the Endangered Species Act and ensuring that it's implemented in the ways that were intended. But I, I think that we're going to need to build as a community um, and continue to build those partnerships, whether it's at the local level or, um, you know, at the national level with those uh, on the Hill and our, you know, our, in legislation for ensuring that this continues to be um, a, a strong act and that conservation is, is able to keep many of these species with us for another 50 years and hopefully longer. Are, are we seeing progress today? And I ask that question because um, the Biden administration almost from day one um, proposed this 30 by 30, how we're going to um, conserve 30% of the nation's lands and waters for biodiversity by the year 2030. Um, E.O. Wilson had a half-Earth proposal where 50% should be preserved for biodiversity. Are we seeing successes move towards those goals, or is most of the energy being spent on protecting the Endangered Species Act and conservation of lands from political attacks? I think that that's a, it's a fine balance, right, that we, we're striking here. We need to continue to defend um, and we need to continue to support and strengthen and build beyond. And so, you know, in any um, one administration, you might imagine that the, the kind of the ratio of those, those efforts changes. Um, certainly uh, in the, the current administration, I think that we have seen some, some key building blocks set for kind of movement forward. There have been some new monuments, right, that have that have gone toward, we have, um, we can say that, uh, I believe as of this year, we have achieved the 30% of uh, conservation of US oceans. Um, and I, you know, I know on the global stage, this year, they will be revamping and revising and reassessing a lot of the national biodiversity strategies and action plans that are setting these countries um, to move us forward in global biodiversity conservation. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that there is there is still hope. I think we just we need to keep that momentum. Um, we need to continue to elevate biodiversity conservation, particularly here in the U.S., given that we aren't uh, party to that Convention on Biological Diversity. Um, and I think we need to make the most of these tools, whether it's continuing to um, push for the current administration to reverse more of the, the, reg the harmful regulations that were put in place that continues to weaken the Endangered Species Act, um, or whether it's continuing to push for some of this really, um, some of it really positive on the ground movement that we're seeing in conservation for uh, our imperiled species. As, you know, through the 20, like the past hundreds of years, ecological science, the more we learn, the more we learn how interconnected we are with nature and how important it is for us to preserve this nature. And, you know, the Endangered Species Act is the strongest law to do that. And it needs to be protected. It needs to be fully funded, and it needs to kind of persist in the future so these species can persist in the future and recover. So, Lindsay, um, as we wrap this up, I mean, we've talked about the past history and, and looking forward and 
the technological advances, the, the, the hope for better funding. I mean, will all these make the Endangered Species Act a, a stronger law to help preserve and conserve species going forward 50 years down the road? I think based on what we've learned from the past, the past 50 years, these major conservation accomplishments that the ESA has set us up for and has achieved, you look at the trends, they're based on being centered in best available science. They're based on collaborative efforts to recover these species across conservation organizations, um, government agencies and departments, uh, academics who hold a lot of that um, Western knowledge, and of course, tribes who, who hold some of that uh, traditional ecological knowledge. And going forward, yeah, I, I think more of that, making uh, the most of some of this new science to fill in the information gaps, this technology to make our um, conservation efforts more strategic and effective, and bringing it all together from the local level up in these collaborations that's what's going to make conservation most effective and in the implementation of the Endangered Species Act. Of course, funding is part of that as well. You mentioned that, Kurt. Um, we're not going to be able to, to move forward if we don't have the resources to um, really ensure that the ESA can realize its goals as intended over 50 years ago now. Um, but I think these components together are what need to be built to continue to strengthen our, our nation's strongest tool for preventing extinction. That's Lindsay Rosa and Andrew Carter, authors of a new report from Defenders of Wildlife, The Endangered Species Act, The Next 50 Years and Beyond. You'll be able to find a link to that report on The Traveler. Lindsay, Andrew, thanks so much for joining me today. It's an interesting topic and we'll look forward to the next 50 years and, and progress that's um, being made. We'll talk to you again then. That's our show for this week. We hope you found it interesting. You can find a link to the report, The Endangered Species Act, The Next 50 Years and Beyond, on the Traveler website. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.